often security is like a tick box exercise for a lot of these companies. And until they've suffered a breach or a major incident, it's not only until then someone that has a clear understanding of what the risk was that they actually start being listened to. You're listening to KBCast, the cybersecurity podcast for all executives. Cutting through the jargon and hype to understand the landscape where risk and technology meet. Now, here's your host, Carissa Breen. Joining me today is Scott Bletcher, Cloud Security Engineer from Oracle, and Tom Walker, Head of Cloud Engineering from Kalima. Today, we're discussing the impacts of the recent Optus breach and the effects it's created on consumers and businesses. We want to focus today's conversation about being proactive and providing tangible advice for those involved with the incident. So, Tom, Scott, thanks for joining. Really appreciate it as it is a little bit last minute. But we, of course, we want to push this content out for our listeners. Now, we all know that Optus has been breached. And if you don't, you now know it, they've been breached. But I want to really focus today's interview on the downstream impacts that this breach has on Australia and our, and our consumers and our, and our businesses. So I'd love to hear it from both of you uh, about what your thoughts are. Great to talk to you again, KB. Thanks for having me on the show. Uh, and yeah, good to have you on the show as well, Tom. Yeah, so look, yeah, we do know that Optus was breached. It is unprecedented in terms of uh, the number of data points uh, and the data point types, Medicare cards, uh, as well as addresses and all of the other personal information that was breached. And we have a 100-point system in Australia, which is good from the sense that uh, assuming that if it was only one of those identity documents that was disclosed for a particular individual, that doesn't actually equate to 100 points. So not everyone is going to be affected as in like as bad uh, as it has been reported, which is good news. Um, but that's not to say that that data couldn't be combined with other data breaches. Uh, and it is fairly early in the day as far as what's gone on. And there has been a bit of mixed reporting and not a huge amount of information for uh, businesses uh, and consumers alike to make informed decisions about what they can do to protect themselves. Just on uh, Scott's last point there, I think the silver lining to all of this is that it's created a, created a heightened sense of awareness at the moment too amongst businesses and, and consumers alike. And I think we'll, we'll talk to that uh, across various elements of the interview today. But I sort of see now, you know, we're already seeing governments offer you know, replacement of, of licenses to do you know, to, to eliminate those leaked license numbers, uh, being anything of relevance, uh, passport reissues as well. This is obviously going to place a strain on services that are already under the pump as well with, with the opening of the COVID uh, restrictions. Yeah, it was, it was 12, 14 weeks to get a passport, you know, having, having potentially you know, millions of Australians reach out to get a new passport as well. Uh, on top of that, where they didn't, might not necessarily have had to, um, is going to place a strain in the system already under a fair bit of strain at the moment. So beyond just the immediate you know, consumers and the impact to Optus itself as a brand, there's, there's secondary and tertiary impacts here that we're going to feel for some time, I think. Yeah, so that's so interesting. I think this is the part that I really want to focus on. I don't know if people are thinking, okay, well, what about all the surrounding businesses that have just been impacted by collateral damage, right? So if we focus on the consumers, something that illuminated to me was I was doing an interview when I first heard about the Optus breach. And then I was sort of telling a few people that I that I knew because it was the day of uh, the morning of the Queen. So, of course, a lot of people are out partying and, and hoo-hiring or whatever words we use today. And someone said, okay, but who cares? My data's out there anyway. Like, who cares? And that was, to me, it's illuminated that perhaps consumers, and if we focus uh, really specifically on that, they aren't really aware that, yes, their data's out there, but the ramifications of 
that data then being in the hands of a criminal, what does that then mean? Would you, but would both of you suggest that from your experience with people, with consumers or your friends or whoever it is, is this the standard belief that people are not sort of thinking forward around, okay, well, these criminals have my data. What can they then use and what can they open with the, with the data that they've got? Yeah, that, that's a really good point, Carissa. I think a lot of people haven't seen or people that potentially haven't been victim to identity theft and fraud as a result of identity theft, they don't really understand what can happen when your data is breached. And certainly when we're talking about uh, the types of information that was uh, leaked as part of this data breach specifically, uh, and it's damaging from a couple of reasons, not just the data points, but the sheer volume. I think we're talking about 40% of the Australian population, which is actually a quite a large proportion of the, uh, the population there. So what we can talk about is what we have seen. So there has been, uh, I think the 2GB, uh, yes, I listened to Talkback Radio, uh, alluded to uh, some customers having tax files returned in their name. They also had uh, loans taken out in their name. And there's also been extortion and phishing style uh, scams, people getting text messages demanding ransom for their data to not be leaked, which is an interesting take on it. Probably unsophisticated people trying to like cash in, but those are the types of things that we've seen now. The types of things I, I could possibly see happening is SIM swapping attacks. That's where people hijack your phone number uh, and then all of a sudden your phone service goes dead and people typically use that to bypass SMS for authentication. I don't see that happening widespread. But I do see if someone has high value accounts, so celebrities, um, politicians, uh, important people, wealth management type people, they're possibly going to be a target of the SIM swapping attack. But I also think that adversaries are going to become more creative, uh, certainly when we start talking about what other data can they link together to potentially get those 100 points of ID. But realistically, as far as consumers go, uh, there is a lot of time, stress, undue stress, I should say, basically involved to changing as much of their personal information that's used to validate them. And then they've also got all the ongoing monitoring, their assets, bank accounts, and things like that as well. Yeah. So just to jump in there for a second, with the 2GB interview, you sent it to me, Scott. It was interesting. Uh, definitely uh, opened my mind up to uh, a lot of things on that interview. But do you think that with the, la- the lady that came on, was she just incredibly unlucky? Because I mean, it was quite a short time. Um, so ultimately, you know, whoever's had, had the data, they've leveraged her name. So do you think it was more so luck that wasn't on certain people's sides already? Because I mean, like that, the velocity of this stuff happening is quite rapid, right? Well, like, look, I can't speculate as to whether there, there was a direct correlation and causation between the breach and her specific uh, circumstances, because I, I, I just don't know. Uh, and I think that was also covered in the 2GB interview by the Optus, Optus representative. But I do see, look, if we look at the uh, extortion SMS uh, that was sent out to a, a number of people that was reported all over Twitter. Uh, I can definitely see people will jump on it, strike while the iron's hot. I think it will take several months for us to actually see the longer term impacts in terms of how many people are actually victims as a result of this data breach. Yeah, ultimately the criminals that, that may already have or, or gain access to this information, they're going to want to, as, as Scott mentioned, strike whilst the iron's hot. By the day, the value of that data drops. So it's unsurprising that that is being used as, as soon as it is. And, and as Scott mentioned, you know, there's no, no definite correlation to say that that was definitely the, the Optus leak um, that led to that, that information being used. It could have been out there from, from other similar leaks. Uh, obviously, this being the, the largest of its type, 
uh, in Australia anyway. Yeah, I, I think vigilance immediately after is, is key uh, and not resting on your laurels in terms of addressing the change of that information as soon as possible is key. So I want to now focus on the broader community who've been impacted like banks, uh, transport agencies across Australia. Like maybe let, let's discuss this and get into this a bit more because, again, if I was a CEO of a bank and I had about a, a large telco, this is going to have flow and impact to my business. I'm going to lose revenue. I have to put more staff on to answer people's calls because something, something's gone wrong. So do you think that people have thought about this? I mean, obviously, everyone's wrapped up in their own sort of consumer problem, but there's also the, you know, everyone else in the surrounding communities that are going to be impacted as well that have just been collateral damage of something that they had really nothing to do with them, but they're just involved because of the sensitivity of the data that's been exploited. Yeah, I think this is a really interesting one. As I said before, I think we need, it will be some time before we can actually see what the impacts will be. I think initially uh, it is great to see that there's been a great response uh, from the government and from a lot, a lot of the uh, financial services industry members to basically say, hey, uh, we'd like to know when there's been a data breach so we can uh, take appropriate action. Um, it will take some time for that to filter down to like the tier two and tier three financial institutions, because what we're actually talking about is that the mechanisms by which organizations validate users currently today relies on the fact that that information is private, not public. And when we now talk about 40% of the population's data or some of the data that's used to verify those people is now public, well, how do we now change our controls and how do we change our procedures uh, to make sure that when someone provides your details or my details, that it is actually the person uh, that it actually belongs to. And that is actually a really difficult challenge. I know we've talked about that on uh, two factors as well around uh, blockchain and identity. And that's a, a really interesting topic. And I see that we will start moving towards that. Um, but for, as an example, I had an internet service provider that I'm no longer with when I decided to cancel they rang me and said, hey, you need to provide us these details. And I go, well, you, don't you have them? And they said, oh, well, you need to provide them for us to close your account. I said, I'm just not going to provide them to you over the phone because you could be anybody. Turned out it actually was the internet service provider and I validated that through a back channel via email. But once again, like the whole process that businesses rely on, once again, is essentially assuming that I was the only person to know my home address, my phone number, my email and my date of birth. Well, all of those things, for example, would be in the Optus data breach. So that, that's an interesting point. Um, and there have been some uh, trials overseas. The USA recently, I believe one of the government agencies in the US has been trying identity verification services and they've had some level of success with that. But it's something that I think Australia will start adopting more. The other interesting thing as well is that I don't see like the tier one and tier two bank providers being the ones mostly affected here i'm looking more at the like the tier three tier four like online lending organizations i know i'm singling them out it's it's just as an example whereby they potentially you know you sign up online they give you an instant response and pay the money into your bank account by the end of the day i see them being the ones um being largely affected by this possibly because they don't have the same diligence and controls around uh, identity verification and validation but then also that flow and effect is back to the consumers which says okay now that someone's taken a loan out in my name uh, after stealing my identity, now I'm now liable. I'm going to have people chasing me down. So like I say, the flow on will be, will be quite a long time to actually realize what's going on here. I think, Chris, you sort of 
alluded to it there. It's it, those that don't, that have directly been impacted by this breach as well, that are going to find frustrations around some of the changes that have uh, have already been thought about by the breach. And that's you know, the big banks have all announced greater scrutiny around identity checking and the like when accounts are being set up or, or home loads. And yeah, you, you could be in a position where I'm going to say it's great from a bank's perspective. I think they've responded the right way there. And and from those affected, that gives them a, a sense of comfort. But from those not affected directly by the breach, there's potential that they they miss out on on buying a home uh, because there's been delays of days or weeks uh, to the approval of their home loans due to six scrutiny. So the impacts are really far reaching when when it's something of this scale because everyone has to respond and, and show that they are responding correctly. So, but that that impacts everyone whether they're directly or indirectly. Uh, impacted by the bridge itself. Yeah, I mean, really interesting. I mean, this discussion is really interesting on where my mind's going. Okay, so a couple of things that was coming up in my mind as you both were speaking is, now, I've heard in interviews uh, the CEO of Optus sort of saying, like, we are by law, we have to hold this information. But why does a company need to hold someone's driver's license, like, forever, like, in perpetuity? So it's, okay, I'm Carissa Breen. They've verified it's me. They've got my driver's license. Do they need to hold that though forever? Like, can't they just verify, authenticate, validate? I am who I say I am, and then they don't keep it. Why do they keep storing it? Because I mean, if they didn't have that data and this happened, we would be in a you know wouldn't be in this peculiar, precarious situation that we're in now, right? This is a really interesting point. Uh, and I think if you went, and this is not specifically limited to Optus, I think if you went to any business and said, okay, what information do you hold? Where is it stored? How long do you store it for? And what regulations do you actually need to store that data to meet? I think you'd get various answers. And I don't think you'd have a, a straightforward, uh, consistent answer from two organizations in the same industry. Uh, and this is one of the problems that we see where, you know, regulation legislators, uh, where they produce legislation to say, okay, you must do X, Y, Z. A lot of the time, it's, there's not a lot of consultation with industry around what that actually means. One of the, one of the really good ones that, that relates to that is around uh, GDPR and the EU's uh, requirements around the, the right to be forgotten. Well, okay, that's great. So someone requests their data be deleted, but, you know, to have, you need, data backups, you need to be able to restore your system. So what do you do? That data is always going to be residing in that backup until those backups expire or they're deleted or whatever it is. Like no one has really thought through. And I've spoken to a lot of organizations in this space where they go, well, what do we do when someone requests their data be deleted? Like they say, it's technically infeasible to be able to restore every backup to then remove a record to then make another backup. Like you can see where the, the problems become. And that's not just that's a technical issue, but also when it comes to why are we storing it, there isn't a lot of clear guidance. And I don't think a lot of organizations have a very clear data catalog either. But this is the part that gets me, right? So it's like, you're a company, you're a big telco, you've got 40% market market share. And then, oh, you know, if, okay, if you're, if you're a risk professional, whether it's tech, business, security risk, whatever you want to say, they should be looking at this saying, we've got this data. Imagine if a big breach happens, which has now happened, this is a problem for us. I don't get, though, how no one thought about this to this magnitude. The level of fidelity of the data being exposed is beyond. And so for me, this is the part, you know, both of you with your background in security, I don't understand why they need to hold it. 
They're saying contractually by law they need to. I, I, I don't believe so. Like, yes, to validate someone is who they are, I get that. But you then don't need to hold it for years on end. And what about the poor people who aren't even cost customers? They've been, you know, impacted by this as well. You know, they, they, they left the telco for a reason and they're still, you know, getting, getting um, you know, hit with uh, the massive stick from this as well. So, I mean, I'm not here to, to bash these people. I, I just want answers, right? Like this is a large company, big budgets, a lot of people, billion-dollar company. No one seems to have a very clear-cut answer. I think a lot of it comes down to confusion, really, confusion around things like the Met Data laws and the you know, the mandatory retention of data. And I think it, I think it's actually what Optus cited as to the reason why they needed to retain that data. And the, the law itself is a bit of a grey area. You'd sort of argue that this PII stuff probably doesn't fall into what the spirit of that law is trying to capture there, but. The, the concerns and the confusion around not understanding the law fully means, well, in the, in the interest of playing it safe, we best retain everything that we can for as long as we can sort of thing. And yeah, I, I think that's probably the, the key thing. I look at the, the places where I've worked, there's, there's definitely been two things uh, pervading. One has been a culture of data being king. So the more data you have uh, about people, the more insights you can derive about people. Rightly or wrongly, that, that probably extends to all data. Obviously, that PII data plays no part of that. But you know, again, this culture, this mindset of keep everything we can on everyone is something that's sort of driven, driven from the top in some organisations. Challenge, I think, is, is the culture of if it isn't broke, don't fix it. The removal of data is something that, that presents a challenge. What if we do this and something goes wrong? Or, or what if we, we do this and, and systems break? That's, that's something to, there's that fear of action uh, when it comes to the, the removal of data as well. So it, it's a really tricky one. As a consumer, it, you know, you're sort of right to be angry at things as, as someone who's worked in, uh, in the industry for as long as I have. It doesn't at all surprise me that the, the pervasive culture of organisations has led to this sort of situation where people are confused, they're not sure what to do, and when in doubt, they do nothing. Yeah, I'm with you, Tom. I'm with you. So so a couple of things that you said there. So you said that, of course, data is king. I understand that. Do we really need people's license numbers, their passport like details for the amount of time? I get initially, I get that part. But like, you know, if I've been a customer there for seven years, hypothetically, do they still need it? Like, because every time you call up a telco, they don't ask you, oh, what's your passport number, Tom? They don't ask you that. So, so why do you need it? Like, and it's not valuable to the point where uh, they're trying to track your habits, your spending habits, what you're doing on your phone or whatever it is. So I'm curious as to why that they sort of need that type of data, the sensitivity of that. And then I guess, you know, a more broader point is, do you think that anyone sat back as a security, someone in risk management and thought, hmm, we've got a lot of people here and we've got a lot of information on people. Imagine if it got breached. Do you think that that conversation has been had internally. Well, definitely has now. But what about prior to that? I mean, this got a lot of people in these places, right? We're not talking about three people. We've got a lot of different service providers as well that outsource, you know, they're outsourcing stuff to. So does anyone know if people have had this conversation at all or even had the thought? Uh, so look, I've, I've worked in organizations as well, some with Tom, in fact, where there's been a long time where people have gone, I'm small fry or I'm, I'm a small business. I'm not going to not going to fall victim to these types of attacks. And I know we're not talking about small businesses, but 
I think everybody needs to work on the premise that they will be attacked and potentially breached. And then when you think about that, yeah, you've got to cover your risk and threat management. You've got you have secure development. You need to deploy it securely. You need to maintain it. You need to have operations. All of these things are crucial, but often until they've fallen victim, they don't know that they need to do it. So like Tom says, when in doubt, do nothing. Uh, and a lot, lot of the time there is a lack of uh, communication and understanding at the right levels in a lot of organizations to actually understand what these risks truly mean. Often security is like a tick box exercise for a lot of these companies. And until they've suffered a breach or a major incident, it's not only until then someone that has a clear understanding of what the risk was that they actually start being listened to. Yeah, I'm, I'm starting to see that you know, for years we've been, we've been doing disaster, disaster planning and scenarios around what if this system fails or that system fails, we, we, you know, we lose access to this building. But more and more, I'm starting to see creep in that, that what happens if we have a data breach and they're starting to play through those scenarios. Uh, I'm not sure if, if Optus did or paid it the credit that that sort of planning uh, deserves because I don't think the, the response was handled particularly well. And, and I think that should be a, a wake-up call to all organisations to really start sitting down and building a plan for what data is at risk. And in the event that we do have a breach type scenario, what is our plan? You know, what is our, what is our PR plan? What are the technical processes to, to shut down the risk? And you know, what are our custom cons look like as well? I would suggest in line with, with Scott's views, it's something that's a tick box exercise. I am seeing an improvement in, in general though across, uh, across the space. And hopefully this is seen as the true wake up call that, that gets everyone thinking about a breach plan. So do you think, unfortunately, and I mean, I've spoken about this publicly before, so many people, have, until something of this nature, of this size, or people physically die from it, we're going to have some type of change in the market. So do you both believe that since this awful incident has happened, there will be change? So for example, telcos become regulated, or they are going to now have different policies that they need to adhere to. They're going to think internally about what they're doing as well whether they're in security or tech or, you know, risk management, do you think that now, unfortunately, we had to have this disaster for there to be some sort of silver lining? I would say so. I think ultimately it's going to push more towards digital identities. Uh, we're going to see new uh, processes and new technologies related to identity verification. We're going to see a whole range of new things. It's, it's one of those, yeah, it's a terrible thing to happen, but I do see that we're going to be moving towards uh, improvement, certainly in the space, like I said, how do you validate a user's identity when their information's public and it's not only known by that one person? Yeah, we're, we're already seeing uh, announcements of a set committee into, um, into data handling and processing and the like. So I think this has certainly spurned on action. Unfortunately, yes, people respond when, when events of this magnitude happen. The unfortunate thing is I, I think in, in two to three years' time, it will be forgotten about till, till something else uh, big happens. But I hope in the meantime, we can put in place some further controls that similar, I guess, to, to PCI DSS. And to your point earlier, Chris, of why are organisations keeping this information when you talk about something like PCI DSS and the handling and storing of credit card details? There's a great deal of scrutiny and processing that goes around that. And it has organisations that, that handle credit card uh, information. You know, the first question they ask is, do we need to keep this? Do we need to process this ourselves? Can we outsource that? 
um, why are we storing this at all? And, and that question and the, and the process actually drives them to, to really question why they're storing that at all. Uh, it'd be interesting to see if a similar thing comes into place for this sort of sensitive data as well. Yeah, and that's a great way of looking at it as well. I think that, I hope so. I know that there are certain individuals out there really pressing hard on this and that, you know, they are keeping people accountable. I think that if we didn't keep people to a high standard uh, with, you know, accountability and responsibility, it will happen again. Uh, I just hope not to this this level and this magnitude. Um, and for a company, you know, I would expect this from a smaller company, not from a big company. So I think that's the interesting part here. So I want to now focus on, you know, controls. What advice would either of you have for consumers? So people listening that perhaps there's a lot of different information flowing from all different types of media people. I want a no BS approach. What can people do today that they can protect themselves? And then, of course, I want to talk about businesses after this. I love it. The, the no BS approach. That's, that's great. Yeah, look, I think from a user's point of view and a consumer and from someone who has been in uh, involved in data breaches in the past, my personal details, not to the same level as the Optus data breach, not like my personal details have been affected. The first thing is you can't, like, don't fret, I guess is my my first advice, um, because it isn't going to help. That stress is not going to aid you in any sort of way moving forward. You can't turn back the clock, unfortunately. But the things I would definitely add, like, and I advocate with my friends and family, is that you need to think that every time you give over your data, you're actually entrusting that data with that party and also the people that that party then shares that data with. And we all know no one reads the terms and conditions of the website. And also you have to trust them, assuming that they're saying and actually following through with what they say in those terms and conditions. Can I just jump in there for a second? So that's a really great point. Terms and conditions on a site. I have read some of them. Hypothetically, just say I went to engage with a company. I read their terms and conditions on the site. And then can you self-audit them to be like, well, are you actually doing that? Like, has anyone ever done that? Uh, that? That would be brilliant. I've personally never done it for anything I've ever used. I just make a deterministic decision on whether I'm comfortable or not. And if I am comfortable, then I would still take safeguards on the premise that they at some point are going to have to slip up. There's going to be an incident, whether it's technical, whether it's human error. Uh, I always work on the premise that at some point there's going to be an incident and potentially the data could be, could be breached. And that brings me to probably my next point, which is around reusing passwords. I know they said no passwords were leaked as part of this, and that's great. That's awesome. Uh, it would be probably much worse if it was because I know a lot of people share passwords and a lot of people share the same password for key systems, key applications that they use, banking, email, other websites. Uh, in the example, if someone's password is leaked and it is used in their email, a lot of people forget that that email account is basically the single source of truth for all the reset passwords that you get. So if someone's got access to your email, they basically have access to every other account that you've ever used um, and registered with that email. And this is one of the things that, you know, a lot of people don't consider and a lot of people don't know if that data has been leaked or not. People don't sit there looking at breach forums or they don't look, they don't read cybersecurity news because a lot of people probably find that dead boring. But there is a really good tool. Uh, Troy Hunt has a website called Have I Been Owned uh, where you can put in your email address and it will say, hey, your email address was found in these data breaches. So, you know, or you can at least proactively monitor, do I need to take action? To that point, I've had family members and friends calling me over the last couple of days, talking to me about you know, enabling two-factor authentication on their email and the like. These are the same, same people that used to have passwords of uh, their kids' names and stuff like that. So that, again, that silver lining, it has created a sense of awareness amongst the community. 
Um, I'd sort of say leverage the fact that various entities are now offering free replacement services, things like licenses of passports. And, and to my earlier point, try and get that done as soon as possible. Don't panic, but try and get that done as soon as possible so that um, you mitigate any exposure there. I really like Scott's approach to things. You know, from a networking security point of view, we, we have this concept of zero trust. It's almost a, a case of you know, if you play your cards right when it comes to to that PII and you obfuscate uh, when necessary and tokenize the like, you can almost get to a point of zero care when it comes to that PII as well. And I think that's going to be something that's going to take a long while, uh, if ever, for for the general population. But I think it's worth investing a bit of time and thought uh, because these things are going to continue to happen because those infiltrating and and extracting that data are just getting smarter and smarter by the day. They're they're always one step ahead. Yeah, I'd I'd definitely add to that as well uh, around the use of MFA. So when we talked about the SIM swapping attacks earlier, for example, if someone has now able, is able to port your phone number, they can also get your two-factor code. So I would strongly recommend a mobile app-based uh, authenticator. Google Authenticator is one. Most cloud providers have them. There's a range that you can use, uh, but using one that actually is on the device rather than relying on the on the cell network is, is something that I would recommend. And beyond that, uh, probably things like considering what data you give over, is there a better way? So for example, yeah, you're going to use a, say I go to a shopping cart website or a shopping website and I say, okay, cool. I want to buy whatever this is. is the only place I can buy it. I'm going to use a unique password, but things like, do I enter my credit card details or do I use Google pay or Apple pay to Tom's point around tokenization? I'm not handing my credit card details to someone who I have no idea about, you know, I, I don't know what their security controls are, or even if they have someone that is un- understand security. So by centralizing and limiting where you spread your data certainly can help uh, when it comes to uh, potential breaches as well. Because obviously if, if that, that shopping website was breached, they're just going to get a tokenized response, which means nothing, right? So, okay. Yeah, these are excellent. Thank you so much for sharing all of your, your thoughts and opinions and advice. I think this is um, handy for people to know. So talking about the SIM hijacking for a second, telcos or specifically Optus going to put in a band-aid solution to ensure like, okay, well, we now know this is could be a thing that could happen across the board because now everyone's data's out there. Are they going to put in extra controls to ensure that if someone's trying to like change their SIM over, it's going to be inherently harder? Or have you seen anything like that going on? Um, because, you know, it's quite easy to do. You don't need that much information to do it. So uh, do you know anything about that, Scott or Tom? I haven't actually seen anything come out uh, and I think this is to your point around the the lack of communications and clear communication on what's being done I have I typically read the news a couple of times a day looking for updates from Optus and haven't seen anything uh, that talks about what they're actually planning to do and how those controls will possibly work um, I do see it probably being an issue for people trying to move away from the provider um, because how did once again how do you validate that the person who's requesting it be moved to another provider? that that's actually legitimate or not. So there are ways that you can do it. Um, I'm not sure what Optus is planning to do though, unfortunately. And do you think as well, so if we look at, uh, you know, tier one banks, sure, but you said like tier two, three providers, is this going to force them to clamp down a little bit more? Because as you said, there are certain companies out there that you can just apply for a you know credit loan, whatever it is, and, and you get it within 24 hours. Are they going to put some controls in place now? Because they're going to know that this could pose a potential 
threat to them as, as an organization. So have you heard anything about that or what would your thoughts be towards uh, implementing some controls for these guys? I suspect there's there's going to be some knee-jerk reactions to things. But yeah, you know, Scott, Scott's point was pretty well made earlier. These Some of these you know, T3 and T4 uh, financial institutions, they, they're still running on the, the smell of an oily rag. For them, implementing some kind of controls is, is something that, that's going to potentially place uh, a big challenge on their internal team. So other than seeing it as a challenge, don't know what else they might be planning. That's buzz. Right, to be honest, I, I just know it's going to be, it's going to be tough from a, from a business perspective for them uh, because they, they can have to be seen to be responding, but what can they actually do given their stature? Yeah, you're so right. I know there's no easy way to answer that question. It's more so that their approach needs to change and how they validate and authenticate an individual, which is hard because it's going to be online, all these types of things. I, I mean, I don't have all the answers to that, but maybe if you are someone in this field or you know someone, they should be getting in, in contact with security professionals to, to understand how to navigate this. Uh, it's not easy. Of course, these guys that are lending this money, they are still going to have a level of responsibility that they need to uphold because they've, you know, they've got an AFSL and all these types of things and they're heavily regulated that people are going to be asking questions. So I think that this breach has now permeated across multiple industries um, and it's definitely had an impact. So I want to sort of, uh, you know, wrap this interview up with understanding from both of you, like what can we learn as an, as an industry and, you know, as practitioners from this breach? And then I guess further to that, what advice would you provide to those who are perhaps worried about something like this happening to them. Yeah, there's a lot we can learn from from this incident, unfortunately. Um, I guess it is is something that everyone can learn from. And I think the first thing is that uh, Optus isn't the first and they're certainly not going to be the last. We really hope that it doesn't happen at this scale and affect so many people in one country again, but we can't be sure of that. So I think from a looking backwards and what you would actually need to do, like I think the the response as Tom highlighted from Optus hasn't been great, uh, and that that's typical. Um, it's not. It's unfortunately not the. Uh, it's not the exception. It's typically the rule when dealing with incidents. Why do you think it hasn't been great though? Do you think they haven't done any tabletop exercises? They haven't like why? Possibly because it's never appeared on their radar. But how can it not appear though? They are a billion dollar organization. They've got thousands of people. Like how? Yeah, look, I think a lot of people don't go to work and write in, a, in an exercise with any sort of with any sort of credibility. Go, we're going to lose eleven million records today. I don't think anybody thinks that. Well, I know you don't wake up and you think that, but you have to have some. Le- I mean, if you're a security person, you need to always be thinking about this like that. Like this is this is the part that still doesn't make sense in my brain. Like I want to make sense of it. Or else we're just being complacent. We're being lazy. We're not taking responsibility. We're not caring. We're just showing up for a paycheck and going home. You shouldn't be in security if that's the way you think. Yeah, and look, you're possibly not wrong. I would say that they just failed to plan for this event. They, they failed to plan, um, and that's just planning to fail, and it's terrible cliche, but it is very true, right? We have to understand what to do in these types of situations, and playbooks are perfect for this. So we need to understand what happens uh, what to do when a particular event happens. We really need to understand what data to collect, right? And how do we preserve that data for digital forensics? Things like what was the issue? How did it occur? Like what was the window of opportunity? Like when did that API become publicly available? And perhaps they're not willing to share that publicly and maybe they do know it, but that would be really useful because that helps individuals understand, okay, well, and other organizations, when should we potentially start looking 
or go back in our logs to start seeing activity that could be potentially malicious and related. Things like when was it first detected? So, and then when was it closed? So what is that window of exploit? When was it available uh, on the internet? And also what data was accessed? I know they kind of done that um, and when and how much and all those kinds of things. There hasn't been a huge amount of clear communication. I think there's been conflicting reports from both Optus and also essentially in the community around, well, actually what did occur. And I think if they set the record straight, that would be perfect. So let me ask you another question. Just say a thousand records were breached. Okay, let's really reduce it back. Do you think that they would have responded the same way that they've responded with the magnitude of the breach of this size? Do you think it was, a, it was just the level of it they couldn't deal with? Or do you think even if five people got breached, they'd still handle it the same way? Well, it, it's interesting. I think that the response from the government and law enforcement and intelligence agencies probably came about from the sheer volume, right? The, the impact of 40% of the population's records being leaked is a pretty significant event. But that also plays into the, well, who do we mobilize in the event of an incident? And you really can drill right down into this and say, well, if it's a five records, we'd do this. If it's a thousand records, we'd do that. You don't, it's not one size fits all and it's not one response for one type of incident. So understanding who you mobilize in the time and event or an incident is really critical. And like, then what actions do you take and by whom? I can't imagine, once again, going back to coming to work and putting on the the risk register that we could lose 11 million records and that we're going to contact the AFP was on their radar. I I just can't imagine that that was the case. No, and I get that. And, you know, we don't want to come to work thinking like that necessarily, but we have to be on guard. We have to think, you know, because of the the amount of people that we are, you know, customer-wise, this could be a risk. It may be a small one, but it it's could be there. So it's just more so that I'm just struggling to believe that, you know, why did they have all the data that they had? Why do they need to keep it? You know, and, you know, we can get into a dissection of the breach in another interview, but it's just more so the handling of it, as both of you have said today, was not great. So then I thought if it was a smaller breach, would they handle it the same way? Probably. I, I think that's quite common of uh, telcos in general. They're used to building robust telecommunications networks, right? They have long build times. They have rigorous testing. They have to be reliable. In fact, I I believe they have SLAs to have uh, connectivity so people can make a call when they need to, to things like triple zero. So it is hard for them to, and certainly larger organizations as well, to be able to transition into more of an agile methodology. And I think that possibly may have been what happened here where we have uh, an application or an API that was not designed to be public that through a range of control failures has become public. And I think you highlighted it earlier, Tom, monitoring of your DNS and all your endpoints, making a simple web request to every DNS record and every open port on your network would have found that pretty quickly and they could have closed it off and said, we found it, there's no no impact here, we probably don't even need to disclose it, would have been something that they could have could have thought about, which would have been great. I'd also kind of highlight that when I think about what, when I looked at the types of data that are actually in there, I'm thinking, well, if it is only meant to be internal, using things like field level data encryption. So there may be legitimate reasons that we are unaware of of why they're holding that data. I can think of a couple. One would be uh, providing that to credit reporting agencies. So say you stop paying your bill and you've got $20,000 outstanding, they need to provide it to debt collectors, as an example. But if the API is only meant to be accessed by other internal systems, encrypting the data inside 
it basically what we call field level encryption using a, a HSM, a hardware security module, uh, or public key cryptography would have been great. It would have meant that, okay, we may have lost some of the data, but a lot of the data was unreadable uh, and it couldn't be decrypted without the, uh, the keys would have been great. I think that would have been a, a wonderful thing. And I'm hoping that other organizations, when we start thinking about what data we collect and how much we collect, how we can actually protect it. Like, do we, like I say, I can't imagine that API needing to be public to people outside of Optus. So it makes sense that that data was encrypted and another system held the keys, if that makes sense. I, I think ultimately it comes down to building a security culture within your organization. Um, and, and the problem is the vast majority of organizations don't see it as a problem until they have been breached. And then when they do build up, a, it becomes almost maniacal uh, around security. We've got to find a balance that, around that sort of thing. But yeah, I've worked in organizations where you've gone in and yeah, my role was in part to build a security conscious culture within the organization. Yeah, you started where everyone shared the same admin password and yeah, within, that doesn't happen overnight, within a year or two, you'd have people that weren't even directly involved in things just coming up to you and, and saying, hey, look, I've seen this. I don't think this is quite right. It doesn't seem to be something that you know, either that data I should have access to, we should see it, or, or there's, a, there's a risk there. Um, so I think building a security conscious culture is really important because it's not just about the reliance on these sort of things. It isn't just on the security team. Everyone has a part to play. And, and if you look at this particular breach, you know, there's systemic failures here in terms of something was implemented with, with the security flaw. Obviously, the monitoring didn't pick up that something was going on. And then the security response has been poor to all that as well. So it's about driving a culture of security um, throughout your organization and accepting to the limitations of, of your people and organization as well uh, and saying, you know, when is the right time to outsource some of these things and not handle them ourselves? You'd say for a smaller, in fact, any organization, why aren't you outsourcing the, the validation of, of this 100-point check to a, to a third party, someone focused on maintaining the security of that data? Why is, why is Optus doing this themselves? Uh, and certainly for a smaller organization, I'd certainly encourage them to use a third party to do that sort of stuff and, and really limit how much data they're capturing there. And then when it comes to those your security operations center and, and your security incident response sort of teams, if you don't have the capability internally or you don't have confidence in your capability, to look at, look at getting someone in that does and can provide you with, these are the steps you have to do to improve or, or completely outsource that function to, to a specialized team as well. I think there's... They're the sorts of things that businesses can do to, to sort of safeguard or, or at least mitigate uh, the risk of this sort of thing happening, not, not expecting that you know, a 2% investment in security is going to solve the problem. So I have a question. Well, I've got many questions. <laughs> um, with the third party, you make a great point. Think about outsourcing it. Absolutely. Why hasn't Optus or Singtel thought about that? Is it a financial thing? It's going to cost them a lot of money to outsource 11 million records, for example. I guess the argument was that they didn't need to keep those records in the first place. And, and if they'd outsourced that, that identity checking service, there, there wouldn't be that, that quantity of records to be holding on to. It is a costly process to, to outsource that. So I can't comment on, on Optus's uh, mindset around that, but it could just be what was done in the past and, and it, was, it was just a process that, that was never changed, I guess. It sometimes can be as simple as that, doing, doing what was done before. Yeah, most definitely. And I think that, you know, look, again, I'm, you know, I have the show, I do want to keep people accountable. I want to ask those tough questions, right? So I think that for me, um, I, I enjoyed having you both here on the show. I think you've given 
amazing insight about what people can do today. Not to freak out, like, you know, if you, if you are a customer, you've been compromised, business customer, don't freak out. I know it's pretty overwhelming. I know that certain uh, media outlets will, will really sort of um, put the fear of, of God into you. But I think that, you know, uh, what Tom and Scott have discussed with us today are some practical points that you can do straight away um, after you listen to this interview. So I just want to thank you both for your time uh, and your insight. And I'd love to do a bit of a deep dive and understand, like, once we have some official comms come out from the telco around, you know, what happened? What could have been what could have been avoided? What could have been done? I think that would make an excellent episode. So if you guys are up for it, I'm up for it. Sounds great. Thanks, Carissa. Totally been a blast. Thanks, guys. Thanks for tuning in. We hope that you found today's episode useful and you took away a few key points. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to get our latest episodes. This podcast is brought to you by Merksec, the specialists in security, search, and recruitment solutions. Visit MercSec.com to connect today. If you'd like to find out how KBI can help grow your cyber business, then please head over to kbi.digital. This podcast was brought to you by KBI.media, the voice of cyber.